This is episode number 400 with Cal Newport. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my friends? My third physical book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. I am so excited and I cannot wait for you to read it. Honestly, I could not be more proud of Comparisonitis. Number one, New York Times best-selling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times best-selling author Gabby Bernstein said, Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this book a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. My hope is that the same holds true for you. If you want to finally free yourself from comparison, fall madly in love with yourself and experience genuine deep happiness like never before, this book is for you. If you want to be a better friend, partner, parent, family member, colleague or human, If you want to experience genuine happiness, have more energy to go after the things that truly matter to you. If you want to free yourself from expectations, unleash your creativity, feel more liberated than you've ever felt before in your life, be free to live your life for you and no one else, feel peace deep from within, truly appreciate your body and your life, experience a radical shift towards authenticity, and unleash the courage to go after your dreams, then head to comparisonitis.com and get your copy and all my awesome extra goodies that I've created for you for free. Not only do you get the book, you will get the official Comparisonitis workbook, a gorgeous Comparisonitis wallpaper for your phone, my ebook, How to Create a Soul-Expanding Comparisonitis Book Club, Not one, but two of my brand new 8D Zen Tone Advanced Brainwave Technology Meditations, which will give you one hour of meditation in just 11 minutes, plus two never-been-heard-or-released-before interviews with global spiritual thought leaders. Just head to comparisonitis.com and please share the book on social media and tell me your top takeaways. I cannot wait for you to read this book. Cal Newport is an Associate Professor of Computer Science at Georgetown University. In addition to researching cutting-edge technology, he also writes about the impact of these innovations on our culture. He is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Digital Minimalism, which argues that we should be much more selective about the technologies we adopt in our personal lives. He also authored the popular book, Deep Work, which I'm sure you've heard of. 
His work has been published in over 25 languages and has been featured in many major publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, Washington Post, and The Economist. He writes regularly for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and his long-running blog, Study Hacks, which receives over 3 million visits a year. And in today's episode, we chat about the difference between deep and shallow work. I love this, and I've implemented this in my own life. What is deep work and what it really feels like to do deep work and why it's a good thing that your work sometimes feels hard. We also talk about how to use consistency and routine to cultivate a deep work habit. We also chat about how to combat distraction and procrastination, the magic of grand gestures to unleash your best work. And Cal is a multiple New York Times bestselling author with zero social media presence. And in today's episode, we chat about how and why he makes that work. We also dive deep into how to transform your own relationship with social media to free up time, mental bandwidth, and creativity, and how smartphones have become dangerous devices for our kids, and the crucial things to consider before giving them a smartphone and access to social media. And for everything that Cal and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 400. And now without further ado, let's get this party started with the incredible Cal Newport. Cal, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Well, I had a bunch of eggs this morning with an inappropriately large amount of coffee. (laughs) Probably not the healthiest way to start the day. Well, it all depends, I guess. (laughs) It depends on your views on coffee, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm so pumped to have you here and to dive into all of your amazingness. I've been following your work for a long time. My husband introduced me to Deep Work, one of your books, many, many years ago. So I'm so grateful for that. But first, for the people who have never heard about you, don't know how amazing you are, can you give a little bit of a background on how you got to where you are today, how you do the work that you now do, and how you've written six incredible books? Well, I mean, first of all, it's important to know that I'm a computer science professor. I'm not a full-time writer. I do theoretical computer science at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and it's a bunch of theorems and lemmas and whiteboards doing equations. So in some sense, that's my day job. But I also more recently write books about the intersection of technology and culture, it kind of makes sense for a technologist to also turn around and write some books about the impacts of these technologies. And so starting with Deep Work in 2016, and then Digital Minimalism in 2019, and then my new book, A World Without Email, that just came out, all those books I've written as a professor, they're all about technology and culture. Now, before then, there was another four books I wrote. So starting as a college student, I wrote my first book, which was a a student advice book. I wrote two more books for students while a grad student. And then a fourth book, as I was transitioning from grad school to the academic world, I wrote a career advice book where I was trying to get at the answer to the question of how do people end up loving what they do for a living? So I have this sort of back catalog that I've been writing since I was 20 years old. And then I have the sort of recent books, which really are in that space of tech 
and its power, but also its unexpected consequences and, and how to integrate tech into a deeply lived professional and personal life. Mm, I love that. I'm so excited to chat about that. But first, I want to dive into deep work. So for someone who's listening, is like, what is deep work? What are they talking about? Can you talk a little bit about what is deep work versus shallow work? What's the difference and why is this so important? Deep work was a term I came up with for a common activity, which is when you are focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So when I say without distraction, I mean no checks of your phone, no quick glances at your inbox, no quick glances at Slack. You're just doing one thing that's cognitively demanding and it gets your full attention. When you're doing that, you're doing deep work. When you're doing anything else, we'll call that shallow work. And my big observation is that, okay, both of these types of work are important. Shallow work is what keeps the lights on, right? I mean, you have to file your invoices, you have to go to meetings, you have to answer the email from HR, but it's deep work in almost any job that actually moves the needle. It's what in knowledge work produces things that are valuable. It's also what allows you to learn new skills or to get better at what you're doing. And my whole argument in that book was we are neglecting deep work. We have sort of accidentally created a world of work in which it's increasingly difficult to do deep work. And I was pointing out, this is a problem. This is actually the main activity by which value is created. Companies don't grow because of email response times. Companies don't grow because you're able to fit in 19 meetings on your Outlook calendars. They, they grow in the knowledge environment because brains are creating new value. We should take deep work more seriously. And so that was the idea that got me started on this entire path that's now generated a bunch of books on tech and the workplace, because yes, it turns out that technology is the reason why we are accidentally making ourselves worse and worse at depth. Exactly. And social media, which we'll talk about later. How is deep work different to a lot of people talk about getting in that flow state or being in flow? How is it different to that? Or is it similar? Well, flow is one type of deep work. It's very narrow, though. And I tend to think we put too much emphasis on it because it's very specific and it only occurs in certain circumstances and it's very nice, but it is not a categorically complete description of deep work. So a, a flow state, right, this idea that comes from, you know, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's groundbreaking research is a state where you lose track of time and performance is effortless. So it's, it's common with athletes, for example, when they're actually performing the downhill ski racer, you fall into this flow state where you're not even, you're, your mind is clear. You're just focused on the task. You lose track of time. It can be very pleasurable. Writers can get this sometimes. They fall into a groove when they're writing. That is a type of deep work because you have to be focused on one thing. You're focused very intensely. You're not distracted. A lot of deep work, however, doesn't feel so nice. A lot of deep work, you don't lose track of time. A lot of deep work is not pleasurable, especially if you're trying to learn something hard or do something that's harder than you know how to do. All of the practicing that that skier had to do to become an Olympic skier that's now in a flow state as they're going down the mountain during the Olympics, all that practicing was not a flow state. It was actually very hard. They were trying to stretch themselves past where they were comfortable. They had to concentrate very intensely on a particular technique that they were trying to improve. And it might be frustrating. There might be some mental resistance. And so... I separate those two issues by saying under this big umbrella of deep work included flow states, which are great. And if you're good at deep work, you've trained yourself to concentrate and you're not being overwhelmed by distractions, you'll get more flow states. But there's a lot more under that deep work umbrella that's not flow states. And that's okay. It's okay if it feels hard and you feel resistance and all you want to do is check social media. That's fine. That resistance is very similar to the muscle burn that an athlete feels when they're trying to lift a heavy weight. It's good. That's how you know that you're actually doing something that's going to induce growth. Yes, I love that distinction. So good. 
A quote from your book, you say, great minds think like artists, but work like accountants. What do you mean by that? Well, and to give credit where credit's due, I took that quote from the New York Times columnist David Brooks, but I think it's a good quote because what it gets to is that just like if you're doing athletic training, doing big things with your mind, creating value with your mind, learning new skills is hard. And the best way to do this is to have structure and a schedule. You, you do your work just like the athlete goes to their gym at certain times, whether they feel like it or not. One of the problems with flow states is that we incorrectly convince ourselves that if I don't feel that inspiration, if I don't fall into the state of effortless work, then something's wrong, and so I shouldn't be doing it. And if that's the standard you're waiting for, that I want to, I want to feel inspired to do the work and feel effortless when I'm doing it, there's very little you'll actually get done. And almost certainly you're not going to get better because almost any activity that's going to make you better in a non-trivial way is probably going to be difficult and straining and in the moment maybe somewhat unpleasant. So Creative people work like accountants. That means, you know, butts and seats, let's write, let's paint, let's code, let's solve. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Just like sometimes the gym feels nice and other times it really burns. But that's what's required to actually extract consistently value from the human brain. I love it. My husband always says, I'm very good at deep work. And I just launched my fourth book into the world. It's called Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy. And I talk about social media and what that's done to comparisonitis in the book, but I'll tell you about that later. But I just wanted to share with you, my husband says that when I have a task like writing a book, as you know, I literally just get into that deep state. And I say, you know, how I wrote most of my books is, okay, I'm writing from nine to 12, say, and I do not get up. I do not check my phone. My phone is in a drawer on airplane mode, so I can't see it. No other tabs are open. For some of my books, I disconnect the internet, so I don't have the internet. And I just get into that state. Is it comfortable? No, it's really uncomfortable. Just sometimes I have to drag myself kicking and screaming to my chair. Absolutely. And then other days it flows really beautifully. Like you were saying about the gym, it doesn't feel as painful. And then some days I'm like, I think I wrote one paragraph and it was a woeful paragraph, but I showed up. And that's the deep work and consistently showing up and consistently showing up. And like you said, like accountants. So I want to hear what are some rituals or routines that we can set up for ourselves to get us in that state of deep work? Because a common thing that I hear, and maybe you hear too, is a lot of people, they come to me or they share on social media that they want more meaning out of their life. They want to do something that brings them joy. They want a fulfilling life, but they just can't seem to sit their butt down and write the book or learn the piano or learn the language or start the pottery class or whatever it is. So what are some rituals or routines that you've seen have really worked for a lot of people to help set them up for that deep work? Well, I usually break this into two categories. And I like to draw an analogy to an athletic pursuit, like let's say you want to run a triathlon. So if you're going to run a triathlon, like that's the meaningful thing you want to do, there's going to be two general types of initiatives you'll need to launch. Some are specific to training for that triathlon, and some of them have to do with your lifestyle in general, your health, your fitness in general, what you're eating, your sleeping, whether or not you're smoking. So you got to live healthy because without that foundation, you're going to have a really hard time. And then you got to train particularly for that particular endeavor. The same thing holds if you want to do something 
taxing for your brain. You want to do something deep. You want to aggregate deep work into a book or poetry or into a new skill that's important to you. You have to do the active training, which is how do I actually make sure that I am doing the cognitive repetitions I need to actually make progress on this? And, and there, what's useful is you need some sort of scheduling system. You cannot leave it up to chance to say, hey, when I'm in the mood, when I'm in the mood to do deep work and have nothing on my schedule, then I'll do it. You know, if that's your standard, just when you feel like it, you'll do it. You will do very, very little. So you need some sort of actual scheduling philosophy. Whatever it is can vary depending on your circumstance. Some people like to do it at the same time every day or every week. Other people are bimodal. They'll do a couple weeks where they're really busy and then they'll take a week where they do nothing but work on it. However you want to do it, you got to be really clear. Here is how my deep work gets scheduled. Rituals also help here. So when you come up to one of these scheduled deep work sessions, if you have a ritual that you do every time it's time to do that deep effort, it will take much less energy on average to actually get into that state and you're going to get much more out of it. So this could be a location ritual, like I go to this writing shed or I I clean off my desk and change the lighting. It can also be an activity ritual. I go on this walk before I start writing or before I start painting, before I start trying to solve proofs. It's the same walk on the same path. And then that just tells my mind, okay, it's thinking time. So that really matters. And there's other training things we can get into about how you can, just like you would get better at swimming for a triathlon, there's things you can do to stretch your ability to concentrate. But this other category is also important, this category of general fitness, which is also probably affecting some of your listeners who write to you on social media, which is if your general cognitive health is not good, it is going to be difficult when the time comes to lock in and do something big or useful with your brain. It's going to be difficult to do it. And what does bad cognitive health looks like? Constant this, right? I mean, if you're constantly escaping into your phone, if you're avoiding having to be alone with your own thoughts and avoiding hard things in your life by constantly looking at your phone, if this is how you deal with anxiety or otherwise negative emotions, let me just look at the phone, that constant stream of distraction is the cognitive equivalent of smoking. Similar if when you work constantly on Slack, constantly on email, constantly jumping around the news websites, right? That is really bad cognitive health. You're building up a mind that is going to be very distraction prone, that's not going to tolerate concentration, that gets very uncomfortable with boredom. So just like having bad lungs is going to make it hard to run a triathlon, if you have a distracted brain, it's going to be very hard to produce meaningful things or to have meaningful engagement with the world of ideas using your brain. So you got to have the fitness, which is a lifestyle commitment cognitive fitness good. And then you have to train for the particular thing you want to do. Let me schedule when I'm doing my time. Let me have rituals when it happens. Maybe let me do some particular mental training outside of those sessions. So it, it's something that has to be taken really seriously. It's very meaningful and satisfying and useful in our today's world to be able to do big things with your brain. But just like doing a big athletic endeavor, it's non-trivial and you have to take it real seriously. Mm, I love that. I was just thinking about there's been times in my life where I've you know, had way too many tabs open on my computer and wanting to reach for the phone and and be distracted and the state of my mental health at those times in my life, it's not pleasant. So I think for someone listening, if they are one of those people that does have a million tabs open and they find themselves constantly reaching for the phone and uncomfortable sitting with themselves and uncomfortable in boredom, what can we do? First of all, you can practice, right? So you expose yourself to lack of stimuli on a regular basis. Nothing overwhelming, right? I'm not going on a 10-day you know, silent meditation retreat, but maybe once or twice every day, do something 
where you are in a state of solitude. And by solitude, I mean it's you alone with your own thoughts and your observations of the world around you. So nothing in your ear, nothing in your hand. And it can be five minutes. It can be 10 minutes. Like, okay, I got to go to the mailbox to mail something. All right, I'm just going to go. No phone. Uh, I'm running errands. I got to go to the drugstore. No phone. It's only going to take me 20 minutes. So you just get used to little doses of this type of solitude. I typically recommend then once a week doing a longer session. So I'm going to go for a hike or a long walk or a long bike ride. And I'm going to do it with nothing in my ear and nothing with my hand. It's just my own thoughts and observing the world around me. Those longer sessions are where you can really actually start to make use of the solitude. Our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of how to make sense of our experiences and how to actually integrate those into our sense of self, figure out more about ourselves and figure out what we're all about and what we want to do. That requires just raw hours of internal monologue, just you alone with your own thoughts, working things through, pushing things around. So there's also a huge just sort of personal psychological benefit to having time free from inputs being created by other minds. So I call it vitamin solitude. I think we all need vitamin solitude every day, a little bit, once a week, a big dose. Just that little habit will make a difference in teaching your brain to be a little bit more comfortable with sometimes we get distraction and diversion and sometimes we don't. And when we don't, that's okay. Mm, I love that. Yes, my husband and I often go to the beach without our phones and or go on walks. And it's so nice. The feeling, it just is so nice. You're in the moment, you're present. It's just beautiful. So you've inspired me. I'm going to do that more. I'm going to do more things where I just leave my phone at home and take that time to just be present and absorb, you know, everything around me. I think our devices have become an extension of our body. And we do need to look at that because it's, it is affecting our mental health. Definitely. And you talk about grand gestures. And one of the stories that you share is about JK Rowling finding it hard to finish her last book and the kids were home and the cleaner came and the dogs were barking and gosh knows what else was happening. And to shift her mindset, she went and checked into a five-star hotel and stayed until she finished her book. That's what I did for my first book, Mastering Your Mingo. I didn't check into a five-star hotel, but I I went to my in-law's house and I locked myself away for six weeks. I literally set up my business so that I wasn't needed. I had my team take care of everything for me and I literally blocked out these six weeks. Now, I know this isn't possible for everybody. You know, people have kids and things to do, but uh, my husband is a musician and he did the same thing. So we went to the same house and he was writing music. He wrote a whole album and I wrote a whole book in this time. And that was a grand gesture and that's what I needed to write my first book and to get Mastering Your Mingo out into the world. So what are some other grand gestures, you know, besides going to a five-star hotel like J.K. Rowling did? What are some other grand gestures that we can do? Well, what makes a grand gesture effective, whether it's expensive or not expensive, whether it requires a lot of time or not a lot of time, is some notion that you are going beyond what is strictly necessary to get something done as a way of signaling to yourself, A, that this is really important, and B, disrupting the normal patterns of distraction that might pull you away, make it harder for you to produce big things with your mind. I mean, another somewhat grand example is the studio. This is part of an office suite I now lease. I call it the Deep Work HQ. I I started leasing it over the summer because of the pandemic. And I took everything out of my study at my house, all of my books. I hired movers and we moved it all. I have a a room in here that I've I've replicated all my bookcases and my carpet. And I have uh, this really long library table with library lamps where 
where I can come here and associate it with depth. And I have a studio here where I'm talking to you right now from where I can come and, and do podcasting and it has a maker lab that I, that I use with my boys really unnecessary, right? I mean, I could still do my work and podcast, you know, from my home. And, you know, it's not cheap. Fortunately, the advertisements for my podcast can cover it, but I could be using that money for something else. But to, there's something grand in the gesture because it's radical, because it's not necessary. It really helps me when I come here and go to my studio. It's like, okay, now I'm in broadcasting mode. I'm going to do it better. And when I go into my, my library here, I'm going to think deeper and produce more books and produce more articles and produce more theorems. And so in some sense, it's worth it. And so, again, that's another big example. But for some people, it's even, I've heard a lot of stories in the pandemic of people, for example, uh, home renovating parts of their house to become deep work sanctuaries, winterizing attics. My favorite is when people take sheds uh, in their yard and you make them into a, like a functional place that you can go and you just read and you have like a marine pellet stove in there. So in the winter, it can be warm. All this stuff is unnecessary. But what it means is when you go there and you go to the attic, or you go to the deep work HQ, or you go to your shed with the marine pellet stove or whatever it is, you are signaling to yourself, I take the intellectual work here seriously. And you're disrupting all the normal distractions. And it's something that can really help you produce at a higher level, but also make working just more sustainable, especially if you feel trapped in your home especially if the office you normally go to has been closed, to try to recreate other disruptive to your routine, interesting, over-the-top type experiences can really be a big psychological salve in addition to being a good way of getting work done. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it could just be setting up a corner in the house with a desk and a lamp and a pot plant and, you know, maybe diffusing some essential oils or, or wearing something, you know, putting on something different, getting out of your yoga pants, you know, and, and putting on something that makes you feel like, okay, now I'm stepping into this time in my day where I do my deep work, or maybe it's tying your hair back. If you're a female in a certain way, there's like so many little, that comes back to what we're saying before about the rituals. With rituals. Yeah. Yeah. So just finding these things, like I know for me, I keep my desk really, really clean because I don't want any distractions, but on my desk, I have my books, a diffuser, and some essential oils and some crystals, and that's it. And for me, those things really inspire me in my space. Um, diffusing some beautiful essential oils before I start my deep work or just even smelling them really helps me get into that state where I know, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get into my deep work. And same with my husband, you know, he's set up, uh, we built out Dream Home a couple of years ago, and he set up his space to make it the ideal music studio. And he did a whole podcast episode on deep work. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes and I'll send it to you so you can listen to it if you like. But it, it is so important. And this is, this is the work that moves the needle forward. Like you were saying before, it's not the constant checking of the emails and responding to social media DMs and all of that stuff, which is lovely to get back to people and to build relationships. But this deep work is what moves the needle forward. I also like to refer to it sometimes as my MITs, my most important tasks. And sometimes I'll say, you know, I'm going to do my deep work or I'm going to do my MITs. And I also wear these noise cancelling headphones. So for me, that's another ritual. That's another signal because my husband and I, we 
share the same office space because in our house we couldn't build two separate ones. We did think about it, but we couldn't build two separate office spaces. So we share the same office space, but whenever he's got headphones on or whenever I've got headphones on, that means do not talk to me. Do not ask me a question. Do not break me out of my state because right now I'm in my deep work. And so there's little things like that you can do that even if your space is the corner of the kitchen and you've got your pot plant and your oils or whatever, putting on headphones and telling the people you live with that this means do not come up to me. Unless the house is burning down, do not come up to me. You know, there's little things like that that we can do that really makes such a big difference. And it's important. And I think people often don't give enough emphasis. Maybe they feel guilty about it. Or they're just used to a much more fragmentary attention style existence. Well, people need me on email and Slack and there's stuff going on on my phone. And I'm not worthy of it's asking for too much, you know, for me to put on headphones and to, to not answer emails. Many people be mad at me or this or that. And I think it's really important to emphasize like you are that it's very meaningful and important to extract value from your brain. And it's also very hard and all these details matter. And you have to be willing to sacrifice other things, to not follow other opportunities, to not see everything interesting that happened on the internet today, to not answer every email, to not go after every product your company could be offering. You, you have to say no to a lot of things in order to say yes to doing the big thing of thinking about the things that are important. And it could be professional or personal, right? I mean, this deep work, this thinking we're talking about could be you alone with your own thoughts, figuring out your life or building out a spiritual or philosophical experience, right? Or whatever it is. But there's big value that comes from this and it's very hard to support. So with the oils and the rituals and the spaces, and, and I think that's also important, getting the right equipment, that's really important. If you're a writer, maybe invest in Scrivener. You might say, yeah, I'm fine with Word, but you know what? Just the fact you invested in Scrivener and it's a little harder to learn, like it signals to yourself that you're taking this seriously. So I agree. I think too many people don't give enough attention to what their brain really deserves and, and what it needs to produce things that are important to them. And fulfilling for them. Yeah, I love that. So let's talk about digital minimalism, which talks about how we need to be more selective about the technologies that we adopt in our personal lives. But before we talk about that, you don't have social media, do you? That's right. Never had an account. Never had an account. And you're a New York Times bestselling author and you've never had social media. Yeah. Okay. Two unrelated things. Yes. <laughs> I, I think those things are unrelated. Tell me about that decision to never join social media because, you know, I find my husband, for example, who's a musician and he wants to do more deep work and he finds he's constantly toying with the social media thing. He feels it's a way for me to get my music out there. It's a way for me to promote my music. And then, you know, there's, there's a part of him that's like, I just want to be in my deep work all the time, you know, 24 seven. So tell us about your decision to not have social media. You know, I don't even remember the exact circumstances when I made that initial decision. I, I was in university. I was a college student when Facebook arrived. And for whatever reason, I, I have some hazy memories of why. I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. But everyone else did. So almost immediately, I had this detached anthropologist type perch to sort of look at this technology spreading. It just didn't interest me. And then as the technologies, you know, they begin to advance, I moved on to graduate school and I was doing a very intense intellectual graduate program. So I was getting my doctorate in computer science at MIT. I was in the, the computer science labs famed theory group. 
this is a place where there was four different MacArthur Genius Grant winners that were like within a hallway walk of me. People would stare at whiteboards for hours at a time. This was not a place where social media was seen as being important. This is a place where where your ability to concentrate and raw brain power, producing the very highest things you could with your brain was like the key to even just having a career, right? To be a professor in this field. And so I had no interest when new tools came along, when Twitter came along, when Facebook went along. At some point, however, this detachment, because I'm this, I was in this weird sort of rarefied field, uh, gave me this interesting insight where I began to notice like, man, people are really spending a lot of time on these things. And I was able to watch from detachment where I just felt like I was from an objective observer. As I say, this seems a little bit kind of weird. You have all these weird rules and these little icons, you're clicking on these things and there's these hashtags and these pictures and hearts move around on it. As an outside observer, I was like an alien that just showed up on earth. I was like, this seems like it's weird that you're spending that much time doing it. And I was surprised by how uh, the response from people got increasingly complicated, their explanations for why this was somehow completely intertwined into everything in their career. I was like, I don't think so. I think these are companies started by my contemporaries in California that make a lot of money if you use this a lot, and they built a tool that gets you to use it a lot, and you're kind of telling a narrative about how your career absolutely depends on it. So I, I began to become a critic of social media, in part because I had this neutral observation. And that kind of shifted. So like in 2016, I had a, an op-ed in the New York Times where I was making some of these arguments. And as late as 2016, I got a huge amount of pushback on that. And people were like, no, this is wrong. Social media is, is key to both democracy and key to all like artistic careers. And everyone needs social media. And so everyone meets each other. And then by 2017, the zeitgeist had completely changed on that. And people were like, ah. I'm not sure about this. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm on this too much. It's like making, I think it's making my life worse. It's making me anxious. I don't think it's good for democracy. There's this interesting shift where after years of being like literally attacked in the pages of major publications for critiquing social media, suddenly I was in the mainstream. So that's been very interesting. That's been a pretty interesting experience. And have you found it affect your work at all? Well, I'm sure I get more done. Definitely get more done. <laughs> The reason I don't use social media, it's not like I feel like I'm above it. It's like I feel like it would take over my life, right? I mean, it's like someone who has alcoholism in their family who doesn't want to get anywhere near a bar. It's not because they feel like they're above bars. It's because they don't trust themselves once they get in there. And so I don't even want to mess with it. I don't want to be on Twitter. I mean, God, I mean, how much if I was on Twitter and then like there's people talking about me on Twitter and some people are saying good things, but at any point there could be someone attacking me and there's like a person who's attacking me and I'd have to keep up with that. And then I'd have to check on like the things that I post if people like it. It seems exhausting. I feel like I would do it all the time and I feel like it would get in the way of actually writing things. So I've just had a mentality of let me just try to produce things that are really good. And hey, maybe people will talk about it on social media. So social media will help me indirectly in that way. But me being on social media, telling people what I'm doing, I figured that's not worth the risk. That's not worth the cost. And it turns out it's possible to have a creative career, for example, where really you're just trying to produce really good things. People tend to find it. Well, you're an example for that, for sure. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. But we can make a concrete, I mean, not to get too much into this artist thing, but I've talked to a bunch of authors like this. Like, let's say you're an author. So social media is my key, right? But the numbers we've settled on is that if you have, let's say, a quarter of a million Twitter followers, which is like a really big Twitter following, what's that going to do to a book launch? Probably around 2,000 to 2,500 sales, which is a fraction of the total amount of sales you eventually need to have for that book launch to be a success, right? which means that the bulk of the sales behind a successful book for almost every author, for example, to use this as an example, has very little to do with you know them telling their social media followers about their book. 
And I think there's a lot more examples like that where we overestimate the degree to which what we're doing on social media is going to have this huge impact on our creative career. Like when it comes to book writing, the right book on the right topic written by the right person at the right time, that's going to sell a lot of copies. If those aren't true, it's not going to sell a lot of copies. The Twitter followers or Instagram followers is probably relatively incidental to the long-term success or failure of that book. Such a good point. Because I think what you mentioned before, we're telling ourselves a narrative. We're convincing ourselves of this narrative that we need it in order to get our work out there or to be quote unquote successful. But that is just a story that we've told ourselves for however long and convinced ourselves. And if you believe it, then that's what you'll manifest. But, you know, we can also explore different narratives around it. Right. So to clarify, of course, there there is value that can come from social media. So the question is, how do you balance these things? So that was the idea that led me to the 2019 book that you mentioned, Digital Minimalism. So Deep Work was about tech in the workplace. Digital Minimalism is really about your personal life. So like your phone and being on social media and video games and streaming videos and trying to understand why we were uneasy about our phones and, and what to do about it. And the big idea from that book, there's this philosophy of digital minimalism says, okay, the right thing to do here is to start from scratch and figure out what do you care about? What do you value? What do you want to spend your time doing? What's important to you? And I actually had people spend 30 days basically free from all this technology just so they could get in touch with those answers. Once you know what you're all about, what's important to you, what you value, what you want to spend your time doing, rebuild your digital life from scratch. So now what you do though, is you say, I'm bringing in this tool to help this specific thing I care about, to amplify this particular value. So you are rebuilding your digital life from scratch to serve things you care about, as opposed to just sort of haphazardly downloading things because they might be interesting or they might bring some value and just seeing what happens. The advantage here is now you're being more selective, but also you know why you're using given technologies. And if you know why you're using, you can optimize. So like I talk to a lot of artists who say, Instagram has this very specific value proposition to me, which is I can look at posts from other artists in my style from all over the world, be exposed to their work. I need that as grist for my creative mill. Instagram is great because even if I don't live in a city that has a bunch of galleries, I can get that inspiration. But once they realize that's why they're using Instagram, they value creativity and it's helping them that way. It's so much easier to put rules around you like, oh, well, I don't need it on my phone for God's sakes. I'll just access it on my computer and probably I'll have to type the password in manually so there's some friction and I'll do it twice a week for 20 minutes like a TV show and I will get all of that value out of Instagram, this inspiration from seeing other art with none of the cost of my prior life where I just haphazardly would look at this thing for distraction all the time. So once you know why you're using a tool, it's very easy to put up fences around it. Like I'm, I'm using Facebook groups is important to me. So I don't need Facebook on my phone. And I'm using a, a newsfeed eradicator plugin so I don't see, you know, my, my crazy uncle. I just, oh, I can go straight to the group and talk to these people I really care about. That's my vision. That's digital minimalism. That's how I think people should use technology in their personal lives. When I went through that for my particular values and my particular interest, I ended up not having any social media, but I do have a blog. I do have a podcast. So that's the balance I figured out. When other people go through this exercise, they'll have a different portfolio of technologies they use, but they'll know why they're using them and they'll be able to optimize how they use them to support a good deep life. And that's my broader answer. And that's the whole point of that book, Digital Minimalism, is deploy tech for particular positive reasons. And it's a blessing for your life. On the contrary, if you just let tech into your life haphazardly, this could be interesting. This could help my business. You know, who knows? It will take over. 
and it will be a curse on your life. It will make things actually much worse. So the same tools can make your life much better, much worse. And I think intention is the way to actually make sure you fall on that better side of the equation. Intention is everything. It's everything. It's so important. And setting up these healthy boundaries for ourselves is so important. I know for me, many years ago, I got rid of all of the social media apps off my phone. I, besides Instagram, I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't have TikTok. I don't have anything else. I deleted LinkedIn. I got really clear on, okay, what do I actually need? What's serving me? I also deleted email off my phone and that was just one of the best decisions ever. I don't have any notifications and my phone is always on silent. There is no red badge that pops up and says I have five new Instagram messages or whatever and there's no dinging and pinging. And for me, that is what works and makes me feel good in my body. And I think we all have to get really clear on what is our intention and what feels good for us. And you know, unless you are a doctor and you need your phone on 24-7 or you're in an industry where you, you need your phone on 24-7 for important calls to come through or things like that, then just get clear on what is going to serve you and your family. Yeah. I mean, once you know what's important to you and you're going towards that, that's also the foundation of very sustainable change. So this was one of the big things I found in that, that particular book is that people who are unhappy about their habits, if the way they approached it was from a perspective of negativity minimization. So I spend too much time on Instagram. I spend too much time on Twitter. I don't like that. So I'm going to resolve to spend less. That is much less effective, much less likely to actually lead to lasting change. And if you instead say, I feel very strongly that this is what I want my life to be like. This is like time with my friends, time with my family, time with my soul, time with really quality endeavor, seeing the sunset on the beach with my husband. And, you know, you, you have these visions and also I'm reading and I'm writing and whatever it is, right? You have a positive vision you really believe in. And then you have a plan for how best to use tech to support that positive vision. That turns out to be way more sustainable, way more willing to be disciplined and make big changes if it's in support of something that's important to us. We have a much harder time being disciplined and making changes when we're just trying to, vaguely speaking, minimize the negative. That's why when people say, I'm on my phone too much, so let me just try to use my phone less. That's too vague of a goal. Every single day, you have to argue, like, what does less mean? Maybe I can look at it now, and that doesn't last. But if you have, oh, here's the apps I use, and here's why I use them, because I like this vision of my life, you're much, much less likely to be like, nah, I'm going to download some other apps. Because in, in, in psychologically speaking, that's like saying, I'm going to abandon this positive vision of my life. People don't like to abandon positive visions, especially once they get traction. So I love what you're doing. I've done similar things in my life, and, and I hope we kind of encourage other people, and I'm sure your audience already knows this, but start with your image of what you want your life to be like. Put tech to use for that image. I mean, I, I can't come back to that enough. And I'm telling you, if you do that, you may end up with some social media. You may end up with no social media. You may end up with this tool. You may not end up with this tool, but like you're very unlikely, for example, to find yourself at bath time with your kids looking at TikTok. You're very unlikely to find yourself wasting an entire afternoon doom scrolling on Twitter because it's just kind of there and you were, and you were kind of trying to feed your anxiety, right? It, it, it's a completely different relationship with technology. Yes, I love it. I think we all need to look at our relationship with technology right now. And I talk about this in comparisonitis because, you know, it's a big tool where people focus on their highlights 
and it's the highlight reel and it can very much cause us to start to compare ourselves to everybody else. And I talk about this in the book and why we need to set up these healthy habits around it and come back to our intention and be really clear on why we're using it and and how that's making us feel. That's really important, how it's making us feel. doesn't matter if all of your friends are on it and it's working for them, but like, how does it make you feel? So I think that's really important. These are all incredible tips and I'm, I'm loving them. You've really inspired me. But I'd love to hear what is your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to? Well, an idea that I, I clarified and put terminology around just recently. So basically on my podcast during the pandemic, me and my audience went down this particular route and I introduced this notion of what I called the deep life, which was articulating really my internalized understanding of what a successful or good life actually is. And and the way I talk about it is you have different categories in your life that are important to you. Not too many of them, but categories that are important to you. And I'm needlessly alliterative when I talk about them. So I like to give them all names to start with C, but you might have things like craft, like what you're producing in the world is valuable and creative and impactful and makes a difference, right? You have your craft. Also, the foundation on which you support your family and are, are a part of your community. You might have constitution, which is you know my term for your, your, your physical and mental health. You might have contemplation. So now you can capture the theological or the philosophical or the ethical. Like this is a big part of a thriving, resilient human life. I'll sometimes put in there oh, community for sure. So like connections with family and friends and those who are around me. Sometimes we'll add in there something like celebration. So just like the enjoyment of good things in life, the beautiful sunset, the really good glass of wine or whatever your, you know, connoisseurship type appreciation of music, et cetera. You have these buckets. To me, success is in each of these buckets. You are investing energy in something that's like really big return, something important, something that really demonstrates that this is an important part of your of your life. And for the most part, you're avoiding dissipating energy on lower value, less important things. So like in craft, you're like really all about the things you do well. You do it deeply. You try to do it at a high level. You try to be uh, impactful and useful in a constitution that's like you're eating well, you're exercising, you're sleeping, right, et cetera. You can see how this goes off. But knowing the parts of your life that are important and putting your energy mainly in the things that really matter and not wasting or distracting your energy on things that don't matter much in each of those buckets, I think if you do that, that is a successful recipe for a life. Uh, I call it the deep life, but it's something that's satisfying and meaningful, but also resilient. And this is relevant right now, but something that can hold up to things change, bad things happen, things you can't control happen in the world, in your politics, whatever. And you're able to still have a life that means something is resilient even throughout those. And so I've been pushing on this deep life notion quite a bit recently. Oh, I love that. So great. So beautiful. Just jumping in to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Paleo Valley. Now, I love companies that are doing great things to help others become healthier and happier like Paleo Valley. For me personally, I love their organic super greens and I love adding it to my smoothies so that I know that I'm getting even more goodness every single day. It's kind of like an insurance policy for me, which is why I love it. Now, Paleo Valley and I both believe that everything you put into your body is an opportunity to either detract from your health or improve it. And now is the time to make your health a priority. Use the code MELISSA at the checkout to get 15% off anything in the store. 
Now, let's get back to this conversation. What are you working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment? Well, you know, one thing very relevant to the current moment is because largely of the pandemic, my research output as a professor went down real far for a variety of reasons. I had a big administrative role that was temporary lead at my university leading up to the pandemic. And so I had sort of, uh, and I just come off a book launched and was sort of recovering from that, had administrative roles. So I was like, let me just take a breather and then I'll get my research back up. And the pandemic hit and that administrative role became even bigger because it created tons of issues that I had to deal with. And then of course the schools where I live are closed and my kids are at home. And so there's a lot of that going on. And I felt this calling to, I should be doing pu- more public facing writing, et cetera, because People are having a hard time. And so I started a podcast. I started doing a lot of writing for publications like the New Yorker and the New York Times. Like I wanted to write things for bigger audiences, try to be useful. But for the first time in my career, my research went to zero, right? I wasn't producing peer-reviewed papers. And so like one of the initiatives I have right now is like, let me take advantage of that reset. And I'm trying to now, and I've just started this, rebuild my life as an academic researcher from scratch. What do I actually want to work on? How do I want to work on it? How do I want to integrate this more meaningful in my life? How do I get more meaning out of my research? And I've, I've really just started this overhaul where I'm, I'm trying to focus in. I used to write a lot of papers. Maybe I want to write less papers, but have them be a lot better and work with people I really, really respect and really have it be the grappling with the ideas, this thing I really enjoy, like not be so sporadic about it, but just be it's a part of my every day, every week. And anyways, the details aren't so important, but I'm basically trying to, you know, I was a, a pretty good researcher, pretty good professor went to zero temporarily. So can I rebuild myself to be higher, kind of higher than I was before? And in a way that's more sustainable and meaningful. And so that's been really interesting. It's scary. It's hard. It's psychologically difficult to have to step back and not be producing things when everyone around you still is. I should read your book, Comparisonitis, because professors have that bad. <laughs> but it's also been pretty rewarding to be able to have the breathing room because everyone kind of gets a gets to take a breath in the pandemic. People understand this is disruptive. So you get a little bit of leeway And so I've been enjoying using that leeway to see, can I start from scratch and rebuild this part of my career into something that I'm even more happy about? Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. How many kids do you have and how old are they? I have three boys. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. So we now you understand why I have a separate office. Exactly. So how have you taught them about social media? Like, What is the narrative that you have with them around social media? Well, it's just not in their radar right now, right? So my my oldest is eight, has spent the last year at home, has not been exposed to phones and social media. It's just not on their radar. If they were older right now, I would not let them have smartphones. And I think by the time they're old enough for that to become really relevant, the culture will have changed more generally on this issue. So it will not be that difficult from a parenting perspective to enforce that dictate, because I think the evidence is coming around to this point that it is not a good idea to give a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, even a 16-year-old a smartphone with social media. I think that should be something that, hey, if you're at college and you want to do that, go ahead, but not in my household. That's a little bit extreme, but I've been going deep. I mean, I talked about this a little bit in digital minimalism, but I've been working on an article recently where I've been reading all of the research literature on teenagers in particular and social media use and psychological well-being. I think there's a real problem. There's a real problem there. And I think five or 10 years from now, we're going to look back and be like, whoops, (laughs) like the fact that we let, it's going to be like before we put the drinking age in place here in the US, like the fact that we used to let 12-year-olds have a smartphone 
because they said all my friends do. I mean, has there ever been a vice that affects kids in the history of kids in which the excuse for why they need it was not all my friends do this and I'll be the only one not doing it? And that, that has been used for everything in the history of parenting that is not good for kids. So I don't really care about that argument. I think we are going to get to a place where that's more culturally acceptable, that this was not a good idea. Kids, teenagers, especially preteens, should not have access to these phones. So I, I have no, no intention for my kids to have access to those anytime soon. What age would you recommend? 18? 18. And I'm, people are more comfortable with 16, but I think 18. And I'm a little bit alone on that, but I, I don't know how long, how much longer I'll be alone. No, I'm with you. You're with I'm me. With okay, you. we got two of us. <laughs> I'm with you. My husband and I are with you. We will be by your side on this, so don't worry. I back it up. 18. Yeah, I think absolutely. And especially for young girls. Young girls, the, the research is really clear. Young girls are having the biggest psychological negative impacts from social media and smartphone use. And so there, be be particularly worried. Young boys have some other issues with video games, excessive video game playing, which is also something to pay attention to. It doesn't have the same psychosocial negative impacts, but it have other impacts, such as you know stopping all other functioning in life except playing video games, <laughs> which is not great. But yeah, I think a lot of this is new. But I'm deep in this research literature, and I'm deep in the contrarian literature that says, oh, it's not really a problem. And I think the contrarian literature is is actually being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. And I think it is going to sift out that, oh, this is terrible, terrible for the teenage brain. I talk about this in comparisonitis, especially for young ones, the teenagers, and just what this is doing to their brain and especially young girls. It's just, wow, it's crazy. What The anxiety, the depression, the suicidal thoughts, the panic attacks. I've looked at all of the research and all of the data, and it's just since they get these phones, it just goes up. And so we do really need to look at it. You made a really good point. You know, our kids come to us and they say, but all my friends are doing it. And we go, oh, okay. But if they came to us and said, but all my friends are smoking, would we say, oh, okay. Or all my friends are drinking and taking drugs. Oh, okay. Like it's crazy. And I do think as well, we will look back and we will think, why did we do that? Why did we give a 12 year old, a 10 year old, even younger, their own smartphone? And my husband and I joke, I am currently pregnant with my first baby girl. And oh, exciting. It's so exciting. That's why you probably see me swaying so much as I stand here. I'm doing lots of swaying. So we often joke, we're like, she won't get, <laughs> she's not getting a phone till she's 55. We're joking. But, you know, we feel like, why, why, why until she's 18? And I get the whole, you know, if the kid catches the bus and they need, they need a phone to call their mum when they get off the bus or things like that. Like, I understand that. But then I think about, me as a child, and I caught the bus and I didn't have a phone. Yeah. You just met your mom. at Payphones. Yeah, yeah. Or you just met your mom, like, at the spot that you said you would meet her at that time. Yeah. Or you have, you can have, they call them feature phones. I think that's fine because it's convenient. You know, if you're like, okay, here's a phone. It does, it's not a smartphone. You can't put social media on it. You can't, but you can you can call me. You need to get picked call up early. Call text. Yeah, and you can text. And it's fine. And it's convenient. And that's fine. And I think that's that's just pure convenience. But once you put the, and I don't know what kids use these days. It was Snapchat when I was writing Digital Minimalism. Snapchat had replaced Instagram for kids, but now Snapchat's old-fashioned. And I don't know if they're using TikTok or- Now it's TikTok. And what's, like, so I can't keep up with it. But yeah, you can have a phone. But I honestly think it's not, you are not, it's not going to be a hard parenting decision for you because your child is just about to be born. I think by the time it is relevant for your daughter, it is going to be just entirely acceptable thing to be like, well, of course, of course, I'm not giving you a phone. 
right? And so I might be right on the boundary before the cultural shifts. If I have an eight-year-old and this is going to be relevant in four years, I really do believe it's by the time it's relevant for, for you and your husband, it's not going to require parenting heroics. It will be mainstream. Like, yeah, it's a 12-year-old. No. Yeah, of course. Of course. It'll be like, of course. Why would we do that? And yeah, I love that. Like, if it is for convenience that they catch the bus or they have swimming lessons after school, you just get them the old school phones. You just call and text. Easy. Problem solved. Problem solved. (laughs) Okay, let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides your books, let's pretend they're in the curriculum because I absolutely think they should be. What is one other book you would choose? Oh, that's an interesting one. What age are we talking about here? We're talking about like high school kids? Yeah, high school. So like that 15, 16, 17 years. You might put Viktor Frankl in there, like Man's Search for Meaning, Such for example, right? Oh. Just to start, I think one of the, the issues of that age is that if you're fortunate, it's possible for everything to have just been going well up to that age, right? As you get each year older, you get the chances you've made it that far without having to face something hard gets lower. But you've got a pretty good chance you can be 17 and got there. And so you're building this vision of the future of just like, oh, here's the things I want to do. I want to go to this, this school and get this job and this will all be good. You're not making any plan yet for like, okay, but what if things go wrong? What is my foundation going to be? What is my meaning going to be? How am I going to be resilient to hard times? And so what happens is if you, when you get hit, you're at university and boom, you know, really bad breakup, you're suffering from uh, mental illness you get injured, you, you're just, it's not working. You're, you're failing out for the first time. And you're like, I have no tools. I don't even have a vision of life of like meaningful life amidst hardship. And there's, there's like dozens, obviously many, many good books that introduce people to those ideas. But I think young people should be introduced to those ideas. What is your plan for your, to build a life such that when things go wrong, it's still a good life. And you should be asking that question as early as your teenage years so that you don't get caught off guard. So that's a great one. A lot of other books get you there as well, but that's one thing that comes to mind. Yes, a couple of guests have recommended that, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well as all of your incredible work. But it is such a good book. It's so good. I love that book. Now, I'd love to hear about your day. How do you set yourself up for a successful day? What is your morning routine? What are your rituals? Can you kind of talk us through, I know no two days are probably ever the same, but like a typical day for you, your little rituals, like do you meditate, all those sorts of things? Well, so. Right after my kids' school day starts, I go for a really long walk. I try to get around 15,000 steps a day. I used to get pretty close to that. So I spend a lot of time on feet. I like to do this year-round in all sorts of different weathers to sort of clear your head and get everything moving. Then I'll plan my day. I use a method called time blocking. Even there's a, a planner I sell called the Time Block Planner that helps with this. But whatever, it's it's a method for productivity in which you actually look at your hours, what's really available? Where are my meetings? What time is free? What do I specifically want to do in this free time? And you make a, a plan for your day that optimizes like what I have available, what I hope to get done, what needs to get done. And you build an optimal plan. It's much more effective in my opinion than just having a list and reacting to emails and just trying to get through a few things. You, you can see the whole gestalt of your time landscape. And so I'll build my time block plan and then I'll execute I'm often working, you know, at my HQ, but but I'll also come home. My wife and my littlest were here this afternoon to have lunch at the offices. And so you do that. And then I have a shutdown routine. My planner even has a special thing for it. But my readers like this idea of a shutdown ritual where you go through this whole ritual of clearing out your brain. All open loops are closed. I'm not missing anything. I have a plan for tomorrow. I can successfully stop thinking about work. My planner, I have a little box, shutdown complete. You check the box. 
work is shut down, switch into home mode. And then we're just up to our ears and kids, you know, until those kids go to bed. Hopefully I get some time to read and that's a normal work day. But then Friday, starting before sundown, we'll do Shabbat and I'll shut everything down. And until Sunday, there's no work. There's no email. It's just family and reading ideas. And so that weekend ritual has been a really important one for me as well. So it's a weekdays feel one way, weekends feel another. I love that. That is something I'm working on. My husband says I need to stop working on the weekends. I have this whole, I'll just get on top of things. And mainly because I'm going on maternity leave soon. And so I'm like, I just, I just get everything set up for the podcast and I'll just keep, you know, doing things. But I know the times where I do actually completely switch off on Saturdays and Sundays and do no work and don't check email. I just go into the next week feeling so refreshed and so alive and grounded and in my body. And so you've inspired me. I'm going to, and I love the whole ritual of Shabbat. You know, I love that because there's no technology, you know, a lot of people who follow it very strictly. And I know that a lot of people as well, they don't drive. There's none of that. It's just about family. And just about being together and sharing beautiful food. And I love that so much. So you've inspired me there. I'm going to get my husband and have a chat with him after and say, we need to do this because it really fills you up. And hey, you can still work on Sunday if you need to, right? So that could be the compromise. Friday night through you know, sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. So you can still prep the podcast on Sunday. So it's a good entryway into it. But yeah, these old books that have been around for a long time, you know, some of those ideas have, have survived for a reason. There's just something about human nature that shutting down in a predictable way works. Exactly. I remember, and I'm not sure if this was the same in the States, but here in Australia, I remember on Sundays, the shopping centers weren't open. And I can't remember what age it happened, but they brought that in. Like maybe I was in high school and all the shopping centers opened on a Sunday. And I remember that was such a big shift. It was huge. It was like, oh, this day of rest is now a day of doing. And yeah, it really did shift things. So I am definitely going to be more mindful of my weekends and incorporate less time on the computer and more time being with people I love and sharing good food and laughing and being in nature, things that I absolutely love. I'm with you. I'm with you. I have the same issue, by the way, where I'm like, well, there's, there's more stuff I could get on top of. And one of the mindsets I've been trying to shift to is, well, I should just do less stuff <laughs> so that it fits in the week. Right? Exactly. It's all arbitrary. Anyways, you, you could double the amount of stuff you're doing and not have nearly enough time to do it, right? It's all kind of arbitrary. So why not? Why keep it just right where you need both weekend days to stay on top of it? Why not just pull it back so that five days is enough? You know, is that really that much different than needing 10 days was impossible? And so I've been trying to do that mindset of do less, do less, do better. You know, if I have a hard time fitting it in, well, I do less things so I can fit it in as opposed to, because otherwise we just fill, our instinct is to fill every minute we have until it becomes untenable. And then we say stop, but why not just say stop 20% earlier? It doesn't make much of a difference in your career, but psychologically and spiritually, it can be the whole difference. Totally. And it's, I think, especially since the pandemic has happened, that whole simplifying, like just simplifying everything. My husband and I went through a massive declutter in every area of our life when the pandemic hit. All of a sudden, we were faced with so much space, which was delicious and beautiful. We loved it. And we were like, okay, let's go through our personal life and let's simplify everything everything. And then let's go through all of our businesses and let's simplify, let's pull this back. And it was the most perfect timing because we're you know, about to have a baby. And so that going into that role 
with so much less baggage feels really nice. And we're still doing it. Like even up until today, we're like, oh, let's get rid of that. Let's stop doing that. Let's delete that. You know, and it's such a good feeling. I don't know. I love it. And if anyone who's seen my house on social media, if they've seen any images or on Instagram stories or whatever, they'll know that my house is very minimalist. So we don't have stuff everywhere. Like we have a lot of clean lines and we have beautiful materials in our home, but we don't have a lot of stuff. People often come to our house and they look around and they're like, where's your stuff? And we're like, what stuff? Like, you know, papers and books and like, like, well, we've got books there and we don't really have papers. We keep everything online and people are really shocked at when they come into our house because we just don't have a lot of stuff. And I like to keep it that way because it clutters my mind. Yeah, well, and, and minimalism, that idea applies to other areas as well. So like I use the term digital minimalism to think about like what's the digital life equivalent of the house that is down to just the things you really care about, right? That's that's why one reviewer said that book was me being like the Mary Kondo of technology, but that's kind of right because I was, let's just have technology that is very carefully chosen and meaningful and not too much of it. And that's better. You can apply minimalism like you were just talking about to your professional career. Like I run the, this company and we're doing all these different things, but what if we really just focus down into, I do this and here's how it happens. I have a bit of a process set up so that it's pretty, you know, I'm not answering emails all day and I do that and that's it. And it's really simple. And I think we get a lot of pleasure out of simplifying because you can put more time into the things that really matter, be it stuff or tools or work initiatives. You can put more time into the stuff that gives you really big returns. So your overall returns are much higher in terms of whatever it is, happiness, peace, you know, profit. And you're avoiding all these other things that are sort of sucking away and distracting and creating clutter in these different parts of your life. And so yeah, I'm a huge believer in minimalism as an idea that applies everywhere. We're wired for it for those reasons. Just when we apply a minimalist mindset to whatever part of our life we're talking about, we always feel happier. And I think that tells us something that that is hitting something deep about how we actually are as humans. I love it. So good. I hope everyone listening is getting inspired and they're going to go do a big clean out of all areas of their life. It feels so good when we do. It feels the best. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Okay. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Take all social media apps off your phone. Even Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. That's why Instagram does well because it needs your camera. So it has a way of getting on your phone. But I'll say I know an, uh, an Instagram, he's a fitness influencer. He's a big believer in these ideas. You know what he did is he bought, even though it's a little bit more annoying, he bought a nicer camera. And then they actually take the images and the videos off the camera onto their computer and they sit down and they upload them. And so it's, he now has this more like comfortable relationship with Instagram where he has followers and he wants to give them really good content but it doesn't have the ability to just grab its attention at any point. So, so even Instagram is possible to be off your phone. But that's its, that's its best trick is you need the camera for this to be important and the camera's on your phone. It's a very tricky, uh, a very tricky move by Instagram. Definitely. Okay, what's one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Do less, do better, right? So in all these different areas of your life, figure out the things that give you a really big return and put a lot of energy into those and then be very comfortable ignoring things that give you just little return. Life is not about finding every little thing that could give you some sort of value or opportunity or distraction. It's about taking the things that, that you know for sure are really important. Like, let me just do those big things and get the big returns and then just have some white space in between. 
Oh, I love white space. I have been making sure that I have lots and lots of white space in my calendar at the moment, being pregnant. I want to leave that white space for afternoon naps and for rest. And because I know that as soon as that baby comes, it's going to be a different story. So I have, I love white space and I want to encourage everyone to go in and, and put in more in their calendar. Well, not put in more, like keep it white in their calendar. Keep it clean. Keep it clean. Exactly. Something I also do is usually on a Sunday, I'll kind of look at my week ahead and I'll look at the whole week. And if I see that there's not enough white space, I just go through and I'm like, cancel that, move that, delete that, get rid of that. And last week I did the same thing. I looked at my week this week and I'm recording a lot of podcasts at the moment because I'm going on maternity leave and I've got a backlog and I'm also doing lots of interviews for comparisonitis. And so lots of interviews, lots going on. And it started to overwhelm me. It hadn't even started the week yet and I felt overwhelmed. And so I just went in and I was like, move that, change that, move that to next week, move that to, you know, just go through. And I canceled that meeting and I did that. And instantly I felt so much better. I'm the same way, by the way, to the point when it came time to, to promote the book I have out now, the, the World Without Email book, I changed the way I did podcast interview scheduling because for the digital minimalism, which came out two years ago, I had given the publicity team like, okay, here's a calendar. I'll mark when I'm available and you can just schedule for me. And the idea was, oh, that'll save me some steps because they can just see and do it. It really stressed me out because I couldn't keep the right balance of white space and not white space and days would get overcrowded. It really stressed me out. This time around, we've changed it where I say, I want to make all the final decisions of when things actually are scheduled. And I'm able to do just like you're talking about. Let's keep this day open. You know, this looks like a hard week. Let's keep this spaced out. Okay, this day I'll put a bunch in a row. Having that control over the calendar to, uh, to avoid it from getting too clumped and to feel like you don't have that white space psychologically has been huge. And so I'm glad I found someone else who has this same, this same reaction to a crowded calendar. But a calendar where there's lots of things on it is a real trigger for me. And I just get antsy. So I'm, I'm with you on that 100%. And I, and I hope that habit persists even after maternity leave. It's just a habit of let's keep this flexible. That really calms me down. Oh my gosh, me too. Me too. And okay, the last one in our rapid fire, which definitely wasn't rapid fire, but that's okay. What is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? A big idea I've written a lot about, including that minimalism book, is when it comes to social interaction, nothing compares to analog. So linguistic interaction, so text messages or comments on social media posts, emails, is a very impoverished form of interaction because our brain has been wired to expect a much richer stream of data. We want to hear voices. We want to hear the pacing and tone. We want to see your eyes. We want to see the body language. We want an actual analog back and forth. That's what our brain associates with sociality. It doesn't know that text on a white thing, on a, on a glowing little piece of glass, is interacting with people. And you can feel paradoxically quite lonely if most of your interaction is happening just through text. And so I'm a big advocate for analog interaction. And then the other thing I'll say to, to, to feel more love is that the more you, are, you feel as if you are sacrificing non-trivial time and energy on behalf of someone else, the stronger that connection will feel. And so while it's easier to say congrats exclamation point under an Instagram post, and it's much harder to actually go see a person and talk to them about the new baby or whatever it is you're congratulating them for, 
you will feel much more strongly connected because you are sacrificing non-trivial time and attention on behalf of another person. So in terms of feeling more love, I, I pitch this a lot to people, is you need to actually sacrifice on behalf of other people. Give up your own time, give up your own attention, be there for other people in a way that is non-trivial and hard. Don't associate just hitting this and swiping that and tapping that emoji as, as actually being sociality. I think especially in the pandemic, a lot of people are like, well, I'm on here all the time. Why do I still feel lonely? It's because the deep social parts of our brain, again, does not associate this with connection. And so go out there and sacrifice on behalf of the people you care about. You will feel a lot more love in your life. 100%. Nothing can compare to that in-person connection that you get. And yes, you're right. It is so much easier to write congrats exclamation mark. And it's a lot less time. It takes a couple of seconds than to you know, bake something for your friend who's just had the baby, drive to their house to sit there for an hour or an hour and a half, and then to drive home. That's a lot more time and energy and effort. But the reward, the fulfillment that you get when you take that time to do that is just so important. I know for me, and maybe women feel this a bit more than men, but I know for me personally, if I haven't interacted with another human being physically, I start to feel like I'm like climbing the walls. Like my husband's like, okay, you've got cabin fever. You need to go out and see a friend. He's like, you need to, and because I work from home, he's like, you need to go and see another human being who isn't me and have a cup of tea with them and interact with them. And he can definitely identify when, when that happens for me. So I love that. I love it. I love in person. I mean, it's just nothing beats it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the biggest return investments we made during the pandemic as we built out a patio in our yard and got a nice fire pit and nice, comfortable outdoor chairs. Huge return on investment because it means it's really easy to have people over and you can start a fire and, and how many people we've had over and to be able to see people and hang out with people and, and people who are maybe very careful about virus and this and that. It feels very safe, but it's, it's in person. And so that that investment was an investment I think we've got our best return on because it's just dozens and dozens of just, there you are, here I am, there's a fire right here. It's very sort of paleolithic and primal, but there's no comparison. Beautiful. This has been so incredible. We've spoken about deep work, digital minimalism, social media, so much more. And I've learned so much and I feel really inspired. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you about. I'll mention two things real quick. One, I have this podcast I started during the pandemic called Deep Questions, where I just we get into all these issues every week and it's QA from the listeners. So if you like these ideas, you should look at that. Also, I have a new book. It just came out in the UK territories. It's March 4th and US is March 2nd. It's called The World Without Email. But if the deep work stuff was interesting to you, you'll really love this book because it gets to the core of how did we end up in this world of work in which it's impossible to do deep work? How do we end up in a world of work where we have 300 emails arrive a day that we have to check a Slack or email inbox once every six minutes on average? The book gets into how we got there, why it's so bad, and then more importantly, gets into the principles for how we could rebuild work. And whether it's your own company or you work on a team or work for someone else, how you can rebuild work so that like your email inbox or Slack is, is like the old physical mailbox, something you maybe you check once a day, but is not at the core of your day. How do we rebuild work so that it's not just constant ad hoc, unstructured back and forth messaging? I think not only is that completely possible, it's inevitable. I make the case in that book. So if you feel stressed out by emails piling up or Slack messages piling up, if you read Deep Work and said, I love this idea of Deep Work and it's just impossible in my company or in my life, 
a world without email, I think, is something that you will really enjoy because it explains how to get past those problems. Oh, I can't wait to read that book. Sounds amazing. I'd love no email. My husband actually retired from email for about a year and a half, and he oh, had an assistant go into his email. And basically, at the end of the day, she would send him a Voxer, which is like a voice message, and just say she would respond to everything she could and anything she couldn't, she'd say, what do you want me to do with this, 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 and this, you know, for one minute or two minutes. And then he would respond and that was it. And he didn't touch his inbox for a long time. And it was so good for him. Like he, he wrote a whole album in that time. It was incredible. So you've inspired me. I'm going to definitely read that. So thank you for sharing that. And your husband's my hero now too, by the way. (laughs) I love that. Retired from email. That is heroic. I love it. Yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm retired. I'm done. He's like, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. Because he was finding that it was pulling him away from his deep work so much that he just was like, this is not how I want to live my life. And the thing, like just really, really briefly, like the way you get the sort of world without email, which is not really a world where email doesn't exist. It's a convenient way to send files or broadcast information. But like the, the whole idea, and this is kind of like the big idea of the book, is you say, well, what are the underlying processes that are generating all these emails? And then once you figure out what they are, you replace them with something better. It doesn't require all that back and forth. And it turns out that if you actually like look at your email inbox, look at all these emails and say, well, what goal is that process is that a part of? What process is that a part of? It turns out that there is much better ways to get most of the things done in your life. If you put a little bit of work into it, a little bit of overhead such that it doesn't require 15 back and forth messages, right? That is like a very easy default behavior. But you can get beyond just, I'm going to look at my inbox less and say, I'm going to actually get my inbox emptier. I'm going to reduce from the source how many messages show up in this thing in the first place. I go all into it in the book. But anyway, it's been one of my big causes since Deep Work came out. It's like, why do we get so much messages? This does not make sense. And I think it is solvable. So good. I think you'll like it. I think your, your, your husband will like it too. We get to the root of the problem and you prevent the messages from getting into the inbox You know, in the first place. It's like when your basement's flooding, you can buy a better bucket which is like better email etiquette and tools and inbox tools, or you can plug up the leak. So not so much water's not coming to your basement in the first place. And I think we can plug the leak on email. So I wrote a whole book to try to explain how. I am 100% reading that. (laughs) And we'll link to it in the show notes. So thank you for sharing. I want to personally thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing in the world and for sharing so openly and authentically with us today. You are helping so many people. So I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back to you. How can we serve you today? Well, honestly, I think anyone who's out there trying to live more deeply, trying to tune down distractions, trying to focus on the things they care about and and not waste too much energy on the things that don't matter, just knowing that people are out there doing that that they're doing things like having these deep work rituals or your husband retiring temporarily from email, that's what makes me happy. And so the more I know people are embracing depth, embracing intention, getting past shallowness, getting past distraction, the happier I am. So, you know, I'm a simple man. I don't have any social media. There's nothing to follow, nothing to like. So just be the change in the world and I'm happy. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cal. This has been epic. You're awesome. And I've loved our conversation. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. Hmm, this episode has definitely inspired me to look at my social media habits and 
the amount of time that I spend on my devices. So I hope it has sparked something within you too and inspired you. And if it has, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review from Shan the Coconut. It's a five-star review titled A Powerhouse Goddess. And Shan says, Melissa, your podcasts shape my days and always leave me questioning new and insightful aspects of the world around us. I listen to them on my way to work and back, and it's revolutionized my driving journeys. The radio seems dull compared to your beaming light and energy and your strong, powerful voice. You are a powerhouse, a deep and enriching thought leader, a delightful and encouraging voice to listen to, and an inspired writer. Thank you so much. Shan, that is so beautiful. Thank you so much for your kind words. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you one of my favorite products, and that is some goodies from Blue Block. So all you have to do is email hello at melissaambrosini.com with your address, and we will send those out to you as a thank you. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at melissaambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you guys get out of each episode, so please come and share them with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. I am so grateful. I love doing this show for you and I'm proud of you and you are amazing for just showing up, for wanting to be the best and the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and just showing up today for you. You're amazing and you rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, you can text it to them, email it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.